All right, before we read this passage, let me start it up this way. So I read an article recently. Uh, it was published in January, and it was called The Epidemic of Loneliness. And this is an article written by kind of um, social science researchers and psychologists based on a study that's been done. So it's a very modern study on the epidemic of loneliness. And that's what they're calling it now, the epidemic of loneliness. The statistics in the article had this sort of, I don't know if this will be surprising to you or really confirming to you, but I, I thought it was pretty interesting. They, they noted that um, almost half, it was 47% of Americans today would consider themselves to be lonely people. They would consider themselves to be lonely. Though in many ways we're certainly more connected than ever, at least in terms of technological advances and social media and that sort of thing, we actually feel more isolated perhaps than ever. And could you guess which age group felt the most lonely, the most isolated? Actually, it was two. It was Gen Z, and they listed them as 18 to 22-year-olds currently. So that's literally college students right now. And millennials, which is like those of you who are super seniors up to me. I'm like the oldest millennial that there is on the planet. And so the two groups that they listed as the most lonely people in America, it's your generation and my generation. So what do they mean by lonely? Is this just an idea that I don't have anything to do, I'm bored, or I wish I had more friends, or whatever? Um, the, the way they define loneliness I think is really helpful. It's, they say that it's an emotional state created when people have fewer meaningful relationships than they would otherwise desire. Fewer meaningful relationships than they would otherwise desire. Relationships that make them feel known and understood. I think that's interesting. Loneliness is defined as this emotion that springs from a lack of meaningful relationships. It's many ways what the Aver brothers have said many times before. Uh, I have some friends, but they don't know who I am. So I write quotations around the word friends. You know that feeling? I've got a lot of people that I know, but I'm not sure any of them know me and really know me. You ever had that experience? You probably had it sometime in the last year where you walk into a room on campus and there's some people you know, but then that, that sinking feeling comes and you're like, does anyone actually care about me in this room? You may have that feeling tonight. You come in RUF and a lot of familiar faces and you're wondering, does, does anyone actually know me? Does anyone love me? The article asked this question, why are so many young people lonely? They say that part of the reason is the growing opportunities to connect online are making us more isolated. Scrolling through the endless stream of curated photos and videos of perfect lives make us feel like we, we don't have that. We, don't have, we missed out on that party or we missed out on that event. I don't have that vacation or whatever. So are you lonely? Have you ever felt lonely? Or um, are there perhaps those around you, roommates, classmates, friends, who really are very lonely? Of course there are. So what does loneliness have to do with this little old first century letter written by a first century apostle to some guy whose name is hard to pronounce? Like, what does that have to do with this? I want to make a bold statement as we open up this letter tonight. If you're a Christian... You carry the cure for loneliness. 
Okay, that's where I want to go over the next four weeks. We're going to tackle this in lots of different ways. But if you're a Christian, you carry the cure for loneliness. And not just loneliness, really the cure for a whole host of other epidemics that plague our current context. Even our campus. We believers have something so powerfully within us that can provide us with a mutual hope and a deep commonality and real meaning and purpose. Not only for our loneliness, but other painful areas. And I think this letter can help us begin to get there as we have tried to apply deeper grace to some of the things we've been talking about all semester. So with that in mind, let's read the first few verses of Philemon. I'm going to read tonight verses 1 through 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved worker, and Athea, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord and they will stand forever. So I want you to picture the scene. There's a knock on the door. Philemon calls across the house to his son Archippus to go see who's at the door. Archippus goes and looks through the first century peephole. And he sees what seems like a familiar face on the other side of the door. He knows that he knows him from somewhere, but he can't quite remember where. And so he calls for his mom, Aphia. And she comes and she looks through the peephole and she sees this man. And she knows exactly who he is. Because he used to live there with him. He used to work with him. How could she forget? Uh, This was a former servant of theirs, but he had disappeared suddenly a few years ago. And what's worse, at the same time that he disappeared, some money disappeared with him. And they haven't seen him since. And now this man is standing on the other side of the door knocking with what looks like a letter in his hand. And he looks very scared and hoping someone will answer, but also really worried that someone's going to actually answer. So Philemon was a leader in the Christian church, the early church in the first century, the church of Colossae. It seems that that church, or at least part of the church of Colossae, met in his home. This was long before First Baptist and First Presbyterian and First Methodist built their buildings in the towns when churches met in homes throughout the communities. All of the churches were in homes, and Philemon must have had a home large enough to host a church and a heart big enough to let people in. And so this community gathered in his home. Philemon was wealthy, obviously. He owned land and he employed a lot of people. He had bond servants or slaves who worked for him. Now, this brings up a troubling question, hopefully right away. A Christian slave owner. We're going to tackle that next week. I'm going to deal with that hopefully very thoroughly next week. Christianity and slavery. But let me just say for now, don't picture an 18th century antebellum South form of slave owner with the mansion and the plantation sort of thing. This Roman system of slavery was very different than sort of the American horrible uh, 18th century stuff. 
Not that the Roman slavery was good. and In fact, it was very terrible, but there, there were sort of lots of different things happening. We'll try to tease that out a little bit uh, next week. But for now, just keep this like mental tab open that Philemon is a wealthy property and slave master, property owner and slave master who had come to know Christ at some point through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So he was converted at some point through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul loves Philemon, and that is so clear in this letter as we go through it. He's so thankful for his ministry to the church and his love for fellow believers. Love, love, love is this theme that comes through these verses. He says love at least five times in the first nine verses alone. And it's because of this love that Paul is about to ask Philemon to do the unthinkable. Because the man who's standing on the other side of the door knocking used to be one of those slaves, and he did steal from Philemon, it seems. He ran away. And by God's amazing providence and grace, in his running in Rome, a thousand miles away from Colossae, he comes across, guess who? The Apostle Paul. And he's converted, just like his former master was, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And now... Paul, who's writing this letter from a Roman prison, sends this letter with Philemon, I mean with Onesimus to Philemon. Onesimus is the slave who ran away. And now he knocks on the door, no doubt, deathly afraid of what will happen. So that's sort of the scene. I want you to picture the many emotions that are going on in this context. Uh, I think of Onesimus. He had everything to lose. And seemingly very little to gain. Would his former master receive him back? Would he give him his old job back or maybe even make his life harder? Would he beat him as he would have had the right to do? Would he turn him in to the Roman authorities who may do God knows what to him? Or would his former master do the unthinkable, the thing that would make sense to no one other than the Apostle Paul? Would he actually forgive him? Onesimus simply had to be filled with fear. He had to be, right? And think of Philemon. He had everything to gain and very little to lose. Justice was in his hands. He had all the power. He had all the privilege to do whatever he wanted. He could do it all to Onesimus. Or he could swallow his pride and look into the eyes of his betrayer and greet him. In love. Philemon would have to face his own pride for the sake of Christ. So Onesimus is facing his fear. Philemon is facing his pride. And then imagine the church. Not just the church in Colossae, but really the first century church. The church at large. One scholar said such a reconciliation would have such far reaching implications in the entire church at that time. It would watch this test case with great interest. If Christianity could work in such tension-filled relationships like this one, it could work anywhere. And so the church was anxiously waiting and watching to see how the gospel might work, actually in real, day-to-day, murky, broken relationships. That's the context. That's why I love this book. There's so much on the line. It causes us to ask, I think, some very important questions. Questions about ourselves, about our relationship with God, and, and especially question, questions about our relationship with other believers. Which brings us to verse 6. 
what I'm calling the koinonia key. That sounds all fancy, doesn't it? The koinonia key. So here's what happens. So during uh, one of my summers in college, actually during several of our summers in college, Kelly and I spent the summer with our campus ministry um, on these various mission projects for like 10 weeks. And there was one of these projects where it's my first summer um, after my freshman year, 10 weeks, and I was living in a motel, the Sunglass Motel, uh, in, or the Spyglass Motel in Panama City Beach, Florida, with all of these people who were on this mission trip with us for 10 weeks, and we were working during the day and doing all these different things at night. And one of the main things that we did during the summer um, project was that we memorized a lot of scripture. That was sort of part of the program. We memorize a verse or several verses together with our room. So I'm in the room with six guys all summer, 10 weeks. It stank badly. No, for 10 weeks, six dudes, 10 weeks. But I remember Philemon verse six was one of the, those main verses that we memorized. And we put it on the back of the door as we would go out into our working world, Right. And we memorized it together, and I've, and I've never forgotten it. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And so the idea was that the emphasis really went to another key part of our trip, and that was this idea that we, we should be sharing our faith with the world around us, right? Sharing our faith as in evangelism. Sharing the gospel with all those people out there. And so the idea is that we would look at this verse when we would leave our hotel room and we would go share our faith and pray that it would become effective for the full knowledge of the gospel or whatever. And so there was an emphasis on out there, share your faith. And that's an important message. It's a very important message. God has called us as Christians to share our faith with those out there for sure. But the more I've studied... This passage, and I've oddly studied it a lot <laughs> over the last 15 years. Verse 6 is not about evangelism at all. There are great verses about evangelism. This ain't one of them. Verse 6 isn't about sharing your faith out there, it's actually about sharing your faith in here. What I mean is with, in relationship to other Christians. And so oddly, as we looked at that verse, as we were going out into the world, really that verse was pointed toward us and those six guys and what it looked like to share our faith with one another. I want to get really like geeky greeky with you here for just a second. All right. So the word underneath sharing is the one I bolded and underlined sharing. This is the Greek word koinonia. Other translations, you may have your Bibles that say something like partnership or communication. I pray that the partnership of your faith or the communication. I don't think there's exactly one English word that gets at the meaning here. The most common translation is what? Fellowship. I pray that the fellowship. But I think these days in the church, this is just my opinion, especially in the southern church, the idea of fellowship has been limited to like halls, meals, and retreats, right? We're going to go to the fellowship hall to have a fellowship dinner with food, fun, and fellowship as we are fellowshipping. And like, we just, it's just this thing you do. It's like Christian, I don't know, Christian chill out together time, whatever that is. Like, that's what fellowship is. 
And it's kind of like not much more than that. It's like sanctified hanging out. That's what fellowship sort of means to us. And so that's why I'm not really using the word as much. I, I want us to think about this word koinonia for a minute. It's deeper than that. Koinonia is about this mutual participation in something, a deep identity that you share with another. A sharing that can't quite be quantified by time or limited to some event. Okay? Koinonia is the dynamic relationship that exists between Christians. A shared union between those who are united with Christ. It's a union that leads to action. It's the power that is within each of those who are in Christ. The power created by God for those who are united in God. If you've seen the movie The Black Panther, I'm going to attempt to do something here. If you've seen the movie The Black Panther, which is such a great movie, I want you to think about the heart-shaped herb that T'Challa drinks. You know it? The heart-shaped herb that is like melted down. It's from Wakanda. He's out here. He's like, eh. it's gone too far now. It's this herb that gives people special powers when they ingest it. Remember how he swallows the purple flower and is kind of melted down or whatever. And then he kind of goes into that like otherly spirit world and he talks with his dad and then he wakes up and then he's like, I'm ready to go. So through the herb, he gained all of this supernatural hero ability, speed, agility, strength, endurance, um, quick healing power, enhanced sensory perception, night vision, which I think would come in really handy in normal day to day life, night vision. Like middle of the night, you get up, you gotta go to the bathroom, night vision would be awesome. Just me? Okay, that's fine. When T'Challa drinks the herb, he's changed and he's filled with his power and he goes to battle and he fights for his people. Listen, if, here's what I'm trying to think about with you for a second. If you're a Christian, you have, you have tremendous power within you. Power that has come from the outside in. And through receiving Christ as Lord, the Spirit is in you and it brings this union with Christ and union with others who are in Christ. I want to say it a thousand different ways, but I hope it makes sense. Christ is in us. Christ is in you and Christ is with you and Christ is with those who are in Christ. Like it is something you share, a deep commonality that gives power. You have the spirit of God in you, giving you all that you need to fight, to do battle every day. And our mutual sharing of that power is this thing, koinonia. I think the other thing about T'Challa is that it's not just the power he receives from the herb. It's the love that he has for his people. I think that's one of the most um, moving parts. And one of the things that this idea of Wakanda forever resonates with so many is because we all long. We all long for a deep connection with others. We want to be known and we want to be loved. and We want to share a union with others who get us and who will fight with us and will fight for us. None of us want to be in a room with people we think we know and fear that they really may not know us at all. We want to be known, we want to be loved, and we want to belong. And so Christianity says, yes, you can be known. And you can be loved. And you have a place to belong. But only as you are known in Christ, loved through Christ, and belong with those who are in Christ. 
Listen, Christianity is not a religion of individualism. And this is what I think really hurts the church in America. We are a country of individualism, of individuals. And Christianity doesn't work as an individual religion. This is not about you and God. It's not a you and God religion. When God calls you into the Christian faith, he actually calls you out of your individualism into togetherness. Matthew Henry, that old theologian, he said, when you take God to be your God, you take his people to be your people too. We share God and we share his people, all of his people. And so this is why Paul says to Philemon, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. As we share Christ with one another in love, in action, in forgiveness, in grace, we grow in knowledge of every good thing that we have in Christ for the sake of Christ. This is why koinonia is key. It's the key to unlock the meaning, I think, of this letter as we continue to study it. And it's the key to understanding who we are as individuals and what we've been called to as Christians together. Now, some of you are in here and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I'm a Christian or I'm I'm certainly not a Christian. Let me just say to you that there is power for you to be found in the name of Christ. Perhaps the key to unlock some of your greatest questions that you've had all along. A key to unlock this fear of being known that that you experience too. That you actually can be known and you can be loved and you you can belong. C.S. Lewis says that true friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, Oh, you too? I thought it was just me. You've had that experience before? I want you to know something. and I want all of you to hear this. You are not alone. I know there's a sense when you're in college, and it's not just college, but there's this sense that we live with our struggles and we think we are the only ones. And you think you're the only one struggling with depression and anxiety. You are not alone. You think you're the only one struggling with same-sex attraction? You're not. You are not alone. You think you're the only one who's struggled with suicidal thoughts or broken relationships or parents are getting a divorce or you feel hooked to pornography or you're cheating your way through college and you're so worried you're going to get caught or you haven't talked to your parents in a few years because you don't know how you are not alone. You are not alone. You may feel lonely at times, but you're not alone. Koinonia is so key to help us understand that we are not alone. If you are in Christ, you have a shared identity with other fellow strugglers. You have a shared power inside of you to aid you in your battles, to come alongside you in your fight, to love you through your fears. Like Onesimus, you may struggle with fear. Like Philemon, you may really be battling pride. Or like the church, you may be anxiously watching how the gospel is impacting others so that you can know how to move forward. Hopefully you connect with someone because you really are not alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote his manifesto on Christian community called Life Together. 
um, about 10, 12 years, I think, before he was executed. If you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, he was a part of a Hitler assassination plot in Germany while he was working as an underground seminary professor. And he was writing about Christian community because he needed it. He needed community so badly. And so he started writing about it. He wrote several books during this time, but one was Life Together to describe what Christian community is really about, what koinonia is really about. And this is a great book. It's like 70 pages long. It's really accessible. You can read this one. But he says something so interesting about loneliness. He says, you can, as a Christian, be committed to public worship. You can be committed to private devotion. You can be committed to service projects. Caring for the poor, you can be committed to all sorts of things, yet still have an internal nagging of loneliness. And he says, what's behind that nagging of loneliness? It is this. And he says, pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but here's what he's saying. The thing that ultimately will isolate you as a Christian and calls you to continue to live in your loneliness is an inability to admit that you are a sinner. Bonhoeffer is saying that you can go do great things and be very lonely if you cannot be honest about the things you struggle with as a Christian. But when you're able to confess, when you're able to come alongside someone and say, oh, I thought it was just me. You've just unlocked the key. So if you are a fellow struggler, are you willing to admit that you're afraid? Are you willing to admit that you feel very lonely or you feel very prideful? There's grace for you, deeper grace in Jesus. There's koinonia for you, deeper grace applied through real and honest Fellowship with other strugglers too. And here's why. Because Jesus draws near to the lonely. You see it all throughout the Gospels. Jesus seems to be so moved by the lonely. And He comes right to them. He draws near to them and He speaks to them and He touches them and He hears them. And He meets their loneliness. And why does Jesus do that? Because He knows something about loneliness. You know, the, the night before Jesus went to the cross... He was praying. And in his prayer, he was asking for help from his friends who kept falling asleep. In his darkest hours, his friends were abandoning him. And soon, uh, one of his friends would really abandon him by giving him up to the authorities. And then on the cross, Jesus experienced the most lonely moment of human history. Not just rejected by men, but even rejected by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus enters into the most lonely moment of human history. So that you don't have to. Let Jesus draw near to you in your loneliness. He loves the lonely. He saves the brokenhearted, as we heard read earlier tonight. He draws near to those who are crushed in spirit. 
Only through Jesus' perfect life, His horrible death, and His glorious resurrection may you now have the Spirit of God in you at all times. God is with you. God is with you at all times. And through Christian community, you have the reminder of the mutual power to overcome, to fight against pride, to fight against fear, to fight against loneliness and addiction and heartache. He knows you fully. And He loves you deeply. You belong to Him. You belong to His people. Don't let pride keep you from experiencing the power that is within. It's the power that may just change everything. Would you pray with me?